Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. You know, I feel like one lucky dude getting to run this show. I get to talk to just some incredible people in the hunting circle. And this guy that we're talking to tonight, well, I should I shouldn't say were me. It was a it was a solo endeavor this time around. Uh Brandon was a uh, uh locked locked on to some other responsibilities uh, don't worry though you get to hear him the next episode he uh he had, he had some uh time available to record and it's actually a really fun episode uh one of the most fun episodes we've done uh between brandon me our good buddy alex Gruen from east west hunts and uh my brother jake and so that'll be in uh the next episode but this episode was just a i don't even know what the right word is for it I mean, just, just kind of like almost overwhelming at times because it is so interesting with what Bill has been gathering about deer behavior and pattern predictability with how deer move and when they move and what, what things are affecting their movement. You know, basically all these things that we've been asking, huh, why does that happen for uh, years? If you're like me and you've been hunting for years, or maybe uh, you're brand new to hunting and you're like, Hey, how do I figure out what deer are going to be doing? Well, this episode is going to give you a good idea on that. And it's going to give you an excellent resource that is available in part, but it's about to become a much larger uh, resource here very soon as it uh, continues to develop and uh, I'm going to say this Bill is one hard working dude and he is a very much so goal oriented driven uh, he, he's like a, a mix between a dreamer and somebody that actually goes and does the dream you know he doesn't just sit there and think up these good ideas and say huh yeah you know somebody ought to no he does it and uh, that's very obvious to see here in this product that he's designed with Spartan Forge. So that's today's interview. But I also feel like a really lucky guy because, and I'm going to let you in on like a little bit of a personal part of my life right now. Because at my job, I am a teacher, okay? And I'm actually going to mention that in our tip of the day in this episode. Uh, but if you've been listening along, you know that by now. In fact, uh, gave a shout out to one of my classes on uh, one of the podcasts this year. And I guess I'm kind of doing that again right now. Uh, this would be a shout out to all of my students, uh, uh, specifically right now to my students at, at my current school that I'm teaching at as we wind down the school year, but also all the former students I've had through the years, you know, as I get older and a little bit more reflective, I guess, maybe you could say, and, and Bill even brings up school in this interview and, and talking about its importance and how, how we relate to kids and all that stuff. And, you know, I just want to do, do just a, a big thank you to all my students through time that I've, that I've gotten to enjoy. Uh, it's just been a very fulfilling and special part of my life. And I, I, I 
man, when I look back at students that I've had before, I almost envy myself then because I don't have them in class now. You know, it's, it's just a really a great feeling that um, uh, I get to know these, these people and, and uh, you know, get to see them grow and uh, go off and change their communities in positive ways. Just incredibly rewarding. So why am I getting so stinking sappy right now? Well, my wife and I, we are going through a big life change right now. I shouldn't just say my wife and I, our family. We are packing up and we're moving. We are uh, going to be moving into the farmhouse that I've talked about a few times in previous episodes uh, where my grandfather um, was born and uh, his parents lived, obviously and uh, farmed there and he farmed there and uh, lived in that house for 84 years yeah pretty crazy lived in that house for 84 years and has recently um, been needing to uh, put plans together to uh, to uh, move on and uh, uh, just because the, the house like that has just gotten pretty uh, challenging for for someone uh who's 84 years old to keep up on and so they have um you know decided to sell the house to my wife and me it's a a fantastic opportunity and uh, we're very excited about that Uh, but it means that like i said we have to move and so um i will be leaving the school that i'm teaching at all my students no don't worry i told them and uh um leave my friends there and uh if you really have been paying close attention it's the high school that i graduated from so there are a lot of people there that mean a whole lot to me and uh you know it's just kind of a day of of mixed emotion it was our last day with students today and uh you know just made me think how incredibly grateful i am for all of them They've uh, been very uh, supportive of the first gen hunter thing and, uh, you know, sharing all sorts of kind words with me on that. And so if you're listening in students now, former students, uh, just a big thank you to you from uh, good old Mr. Boucher and, uh, you know, hope, hope that, uh, the next phase of life for you, whatever it is, is one that you meet with great success and excitement. And so I just wanted to put that in here on this one got me a little sappy i guess (laughs) but uh uh no it's it's been a it's been a good experience and i actually uh today after uh school was done i had to go play in a mud volleyball tournament kind of a tradition at our school and um the staff team gonna rub this in a little bit we dominated i mean we almost had a shutout in our final championship match um but uh we kind of blew that but we still won and uh so just uh uh ended out on a good note but but uh let's go ahead now and jump into episode number 56 on the first gen hunter podcast an interview with mr bill thompson of spartan forge
Hunting is hard there. I said it. Hunting is a challenging pastime. And in fact, if you're looking for some instant gratification, um, I'm going to go out there and say that most of the time, hunting is not going to provide that to you. I mean, maybe if you go dove hunting or maybe if you just like hit the perfect day of waterfowl hunting and the birds are just, you know, everywhere, you might get kind of close then. But most of the time, and especially with the species that we're talking about tonight, specifically the American favorite, the white-tailed deer, delayed gratification is the name of the game. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the whole purpose of this podcast. I am a first-gen hunter, and uh, I believe our guest is, if not a first-gen hunter, just from talking with him in the past, very close to being a first-gen hunter, someone who really didn't get into it until he was an adult as well. And uh, it's hard. If you're listening and you're in that same boat, we get it, man. It's it is it's not easy to do that, and that's why we're here. We're pulling in these these uh, really good guests who uh, have this high level experience, some level you know expertise in different areas. And maybe we present a product, maybe we you know just give you a relatable story so that you uh, know that you're not the only one suffering in the woods out there and wondering what on earth you're doing and why you're doing it. But uh, tonight is an extra special episode i'm gonna say right now and we've had some really cool uh interviews this will be episode number 56 when it comes out this has the potential to be like the coolest episode that we've we've had yet and if it's not it'll be because i didn't do a good enough job asking the right questions (laughs) because i have had my mind blown time and time again when i have uh talked to our guest tonight which is mr bill thompson of spartan forge bill thanks so much for coming on the show tonight man hey sir thanks for having me how are you doing tonight ken doing real well well i i should give you a warning and i should give the guests a warning right now i have had the biggest like choke slam from spring allergies over this last weekend that I think I've ever had in my entire life. I woke up Friday morning and I could like just ha- I just had that dreaded burn in the throat type feeling. I was like, oh no, am I getting a cold or something? And of course, you know, at this point in history, anytime you get sick, you're like, okay, how's everyone around me going to look at me now? You know, I got to swear that I don't have COVID or something. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so... Yeah, you might hear a little bit of sniffing. You might you might hear uh, me blowing my nose or sneezing violently in the background, but uh, I should pull through. Okay, and uh, I'll do my best to edit out all the extra terrible noises that I may make. But mm-hmm. but uh, other than that, man, I'm doing great, and uh, I'm really excited to hear about Spartan Forge and uh, the the Outfitter program that you guys are rolling out. What a great team you guys have there. I've I've you know spent some time on your website. I've actually passed your website around to a bunch of my uh hunting friends and some of the some of these guys are you know some of the most knowledgeable hunters that I've I've come across and they're just like wow that is really cool. And so um I think I think everyone by the end of this episode they will be feeling the same way uh just with what they're seeing and um or hearing about rather and hopefully checking out for themselves when we give them the website to look at and social media to follow and that kind of thing but let's start with your background bill um so i kind of kind of spilled the beans a little bit there what was your uh hunting experience growing up did you have one uh yeah not much of one it was mostly hunting was a cultural thing that i might do every once in a while um it was certainly something growing up in north dakota that everybody did 
Um, and so, yeah, not until I joined the military and actually it was my brother-in-law at the time that got me into hunting or into bow hunting, I should say. And that was kind of the first time that it gripped me. Um, you know, being in the military for all these years, <clears throat> I got really, uh, you know, a great sense of meaning in the work that I did. And it was actually a, a, a point of, um, I was worried, you know, especially when I was younger, that when I got out, I wasn't gonna be able to do something that meant as much, as much to me or created that deep sense of meaning that I got from, you know, being an American soldier. And then when I started bow hunting, you know, it, it turned out that, uh, you know, being able to isolate the variables and putting a plan together and having it, you know, unfold in front of you in real time created that same type of thing for me. So thankfully it will be my, uh, release into the future. But yeah, like, you know, a lot of your listeners, I didn't get serious. I didn't have an idea of what a scrape line was until I was, you know, 25 or 26 years old. So, um, up to that point, it was hunting agricultural fields first couple or, you know, third week of November in North Dakota every couple of years or so. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that that's cool that your your background is is one where you did have some experience, but then you really got more serious about it later. Because I think that there's probably quite a few guests that listen in that are in that same position where you know they've they they maybe did like the kind of like you said the cultural the 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 almost expected family tradition of everybody goes out for gun season and then you know that's hunting season and there's nothing wrong with that by any means if that's what somebody's got time for if that that's what makes them happy and and feel content by all means that's great but i imagine there are some people out there who've who've kind of done that and then they start looking around seeing some of their friends what they're doing with a bow and how that allows them to get out more often and pick up other tags and stuff like that and and they want to really dive in uh, uh, to a fuller extent later in life and so i think that's really cool that your story matches up like that well, so you talked a little bit about it, your military experience. And from, from our background conversations, you mentioned it there a little bit with the fulfillment that you got from working in the military and, you know, all these skills that you're picking up. And, and I've often wondered that, you know, I'm not a person that served myself. I have some family members. My, my brother is, is in the Army and um, a cousin that I'm really close to. He was uh, in the Marine Corps and did uh, three tours in Iraq uh, back in the early two early to mid two thousands. But, um, I always think for guys like that, you know, they're learning these, these really specific skills, you know, at, at a very high level and under incredible stress too. You know, uh, you think of, uh, a, a veteran who's been in combat situations and they have, you know, a handful of jobs that they're supposed to be the expert in, while someone's shooting at them or while lives are on the line or, you know, things aren't working how they should be working and they still got to do it. And then you get out, you know, some, some guy might only do four years or maybe do, you know, eight years or whatever. And then it's just like a, an off switch. What was that? Was that kind of hard to, to like pick up all these skills and then all of a sudden just be like, okay, you know, whenever you're done with the military, you're done doing that. You know, is that, do you think that's a real problem for a lot of guys in the military? Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I can only speak for myself and, but you know, it seems to be that it's a common narrative that I get from guys is when they get out, they kind of, 
you know, one of the things about the military that I think is unique is it forces you into situations with people where you're truly placing your life in another person's hands. Um, and it's just that. So there's two things I think that contribute to it. So I, I misspoke there. It was placing your life in someone else's hands, almost like a blind trust, right? Mm-hmm. Which generally you only get from relationships that you build over time. But time is not, you know, a thing that you get in the military. So it happens quickly. Um, and I think one of the ways that that gets done, or at least at least the way it was done for me was they place you in awful situations together in training environments where there's like a shared misery (laughs) (laughs) and that turns out to be a pretty good way to make people bond. Like, you know, it's one thing to be, you know, laying alone in the muck, you know, cold for whatever reason a person might do that right alone (laughs) um and there's not a lot to be found there but then when it's you and like you know 30 buddies and you're all you know going through it together it creates a it creates a you know i don't don't know how to explain it but it's like a sense of camaraderie that comes from the shared pain i guess is the best way to explain it Um, and it's another joke that i make surrounding that is you know you go through a school that's particularly tough, whether it's like a, a selection school or a seer school or whatever it might be. It's awful when you're going through it, but then it's kind of fun to talk about once it's over. Um, and it, it's all, it's like that conflation of all of those things. So I, I think one of the problems, and again, speaking for myself, right, I left the operations realm in the military almost three years ago. And it even happened to me even though I'm still active duty until July, it, it happened to me when I went back to like an office environment where I was promoted to CW4, I'm a chief warrant officer, we're kind of technicians. And I became an advisor, a colonel that I used to work for um, a long time ago asked me to come and do some advising for him actually while I was in Afghanistan on my last tour of Afghanistan. So I took that job, I went to work for him. And when I entered into that, it was like a civilian environment, I, I suppose maybe 5% of the people in the organization were military. The rest of them were civilians and it's, it's a different culture. And I even felt it there where, right. These are no longer people that I can depend on. Um, not because they're bad or anything. It's just because our value systems aren't aligned. Um, like I said, it's that shared sense of camaraderie and kind of embracing the suck with a friend and, and everybody has each other's back. Whereas in the civilian world, it's kind of like, you know, what do I have to do to get promoted? how do I, you know, I'm trying to align, you know, as, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, how do I align myself in this organization to set myself up for success? You know, everyone's got their rice bowl. It becomes much more of a political thing. So even for me going through that, it was, you know, I could speak to that part of separating from the military, even though I'm not out yet, but even that was a cultural shock for me. Um, and even though I had experienced it before, doing it again it was like oh i have to relearn all of these lessons again like don't say that or you can't talk <laughs> that way or, you know right. all of these things because you know whatever the systems that we've erected um although imperfect um you know have their reasons and they're um they're there for you know whatever but um yeah it's it's definitely a thing where when people get out you see them you know you'll see a guy who really hated wearing his boots or his dog tags or um, getting the haircuts all of a sudden doing it just because they're trying to recreate that kind of, um, Hmm. those touch points with their service, you know? Um, so yeah, I think, I think the main problem, this is a really long answer. No, you're going to have to cut me off. But, um, (laughs) I think, uh, it's just that, you know, 
first off, it's, they're missing sense of meaning because they might take a job where the meaning's not there. Um, you know, whether it's just they're getting out and now they're just, you know, a lot of times <laughs> I was doing a, a transition briefing. It's called TAP. And they said something like 80 percent of the soldiers who get out of the military will take their first job and they'll be out of that job in a year. So it's just like they get into that first job as a transition. They think they know what they want. They go to it. It's not at all what they wanted or they find something else or they they understand how to better navigate the the free market or, you know, the civilian workforce. And then they go to what they actually want to do. So it's a transitional period. They're relearning like all of the cultural things that they might have forgotten while they were in. And it's just, you know, again, it's it's I think at least for me and again, I'm speaking from my own experience. It's the camaraderie, I think, that really does people in or makes them, you know, reach out to those people that they used to be with um, when they were serving and going through those awful times together. I can say for myself, those are certainly the people that I'm in contact with the most are the people that I really, you know, um, you know, uh, went through the worst things with. Yeah. Well, and you know, I'll say this for being, uh, you know, in the outsider position, as I am when I look at the military and, uh, you know, you, whenever I rub shoulders with people such as yourself, I envy that, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, you get a little taste of it in different contexts, you know, where you have, you have, uh, I imagine people who go through like med school or, or, um, you know, some, some like really, uh, challenging, educational experience like that or or uh, maybe even play on like a high level uh athletic team or something you know like sure. college football or something like that together they they might get a little taste of that but i really don't think that there's any other any other uh i guess context where that happens you know where where you have such a such a brotherhood and sisterhood at, as is formed in the military, but, uh, you know, and, and a common friend that we have, um, Mr. Brad Luttrell from go wild. Uh, we, we interviewed him and, uh, we talked all about how he has worked so hard to foster a, a better part of the hunting community, the outdoor community really, and bring people together through his, his network and, and, uh, you know, foster that sense of belonging that, so many people have, you know, and, and I think, uh, when you look at the military and see how, how, uh, you can bring in all these people, some of which, you know, when I look at, at some of my friends who went into the military or students that I've had really were kind of, you know, misfits even sure. through high school. And then they go into the military and they find where they, you know, they find their place and they're, you know, that's something they, they relish and cherish for the rest of their life. And so, yeah, yeah I was certainly that kid <laughs> certainly in high school uh, the misfit type so um sure yeah i think you're absolutely you hit the nail on the head there because often um society doesn't know how to deal with those types you know you have a child who's got a ton of energy or um you know it doesn't fit you know the, the school system is gr is great has a lot of great aspects to it i think one of the aspects where it fails is is that it doesn't do a lot for the individual part of kids Hmm. You know, every, you know, it was built to, you know, I think it was a Prussian model. The original school system model was a Prussian model meant to make like good factory workers, hmm. which is why we like use bells. Yeah. So, yeah. um, and everyone sits in desks in a row yep. and, you know, it's, 
it, it I think for, especially for young men with a lot of energy or when they're changing that, you know, going through puberty, whatever it is. And I was full of energy and, you know, picking fights and, and doing all of those types of things. Um, it, the school system oftentimes doesn't have the capacity to deal with that in young men, whereas the military does. And, and, and that military, as you said earlier, it will thrust that meaning onto you, whether or not you want it, right? Like you're here to you know, fight for the constitution and the person to your left and your person to your right. And so when you're training that, that when you're training and you're getting ready to go to war, that needs to be utmost in your mind. So whereas a person has to develop, you know, the much more difficult thing is to develop that deep sense of meaning on your own, whether that's through, you know, your religion or um, uh, your job or your family. Um, and then to cultivate that, you know, it's actually pretty easy to have it thrust on you by the military. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, I think the more challenging thing is when you meet people who haven't served and they seem to have built that on their own. Those are the people I really want to listen from or listen to, excuse me. Um, hmm. And I think they're truly interesting. So anyway. Yeah, no, I, uh, this is, this is a great conversation. I didn't even have this uh, scripted out to go this, this in depth, but it's good. It's good to talk some stuff other than just hunting all the time, but sure. you know, that but we is, should get to that. At yeah, some we point. should, we should, we should <laughs> at some point. That's around. why, <laughs> but uh, you know, with your, your military experience, you know, and, and as you just said, taking a job so seriously, you've clearly done that with Spartan Forge. I mean, from, from what you've shown me and what we've talked about in our previous conversations, there, it's very obvious that this is a passionate project for yourself, something that, that, uh, goes far beyond just hours logged and, and, you know, deeper than just a, an, an interest in something. It it is truly something that you have channeled your skill into and your personality and just kind of the way you look at solving a problem or or meeting a need. And so I, I find that very interesting because it has such a personal touch on it. Can you kind of explain how your military experience, I mean, for as much as you're allowed to talk about, obviously, um, how your military experience has flown you know, into this, this project? Sure. So, I mean, from, from a personality perspective, I'm a pretty um, open person and in that I like to um, learn as much as I can and explore ideas from all kinds of different angles. And I've had that since I was young, which was another reason why I don't think the school system served me particularly well, because there's that one way to learn. And I like learning in a myriad of ways and, and the other thing was the military will thrust conscientiousness onto you. And that was something I lacked as a young man. So the military, um, when I joined, I, I was an in intelligence. Um, I, I went into the intelligence discipline, which, you know, it's always funny to say it's an oxymoron because it kind of is. But um, uh, the, the key with in, in the intelligence discipline is kind of to state the objective like, what is it that we're trying to achieve in a particular do domain? And then and then you talk about what the capacity that you have as a service or as a person or as a unit in that domain. And then and then identify the weaknesses that you have. And this is all broken down in something called a military decision making process. Um, or or you could look up like the AAR process, any of those things. But then th the next thing that you do is you identify your weaknesses 
and the variables that surround those weaknesses. And then you identify the mechanisms that you can develop and, and, and frame them in a way that it does one of two things. It mitigates the risk or it mitigates the weakness that you have in a particular domain or capacity, or it turns it into a strength. Um, and then you do the same thing with the enemy is, is the enemy relying on something too much or what, what are their particular strengths and weaknesses? And um, I'm breaking up, I'm breaking down a bunch of things and making it very, sound very simple. It's not this simple at all, but um, in the intelligence realm, we call this <clears throat> a particular portion intelligence preparation of the battlefield. So very put simply, we're, we're identifying an objective. We're talking about our core capacities that surrounds that objective. And then we are identifying the variables that will, that we have, you know, pertaining to the process I talked before, we're accounting for them. And then we are, um, you know, carrying out the operation when we think that the, the pieces are aligned and that the time is right. And that this is, you know, w w to achieve our ends, this is our best chance. So in the military, we do that through a variety of ways in the intelligence community. We have signals intelligence and human intelligence, and we have um, cyber now as a domain, or what we're calling SEMA, which is cyber electromagnetic activities. We have um, imagery intelligence. We have uh, MAZINT, or um, me um, measuring and signals intelligence. And then we have FISINT, which is Foreign Instrumentation Signals Intelligence. All of these intelligence disciplines are trying to account for all of those weaknesses we have as a force and then developing some kind of holistic and, and prudent way to attack these problems. So, you know, I, I fortunately, I've served across a variety of these disciplines um, and I've been able to kind of understand that core process that goes into mitigating and or at first identifying and mitigating all of those risks. and then. You know, the goes back to the old Shakespeare quote that I say all the time, which is uh, the readiness is all. And, you know, when you're getting ready for a military operation, another, you know, I actually think I just posted it on our Instagram account the other day. But um, the plan is nothing. But planning is everything. I, I believe that's attributed to Dwight D. Eisenhower. But the, the, the point there is, is, you know, you can jump as a whitetail hunter, you can jump on a computer. You can try to make all of the plans, the best laid plans of mice and men, as it said, as you're, you know, rolling out maybe your, your, your cyber scouting plan is, you know, how you might attack a particular property or public land piece that year. But if you're not getting out there and with that plan and then walking the property prior to the season and putting up cameras and, you know, maybe looking at, you know, I even go as far as I look at the hunter logs in Maryland where I hunt, you have to sign in and out on a lot of these lands. Oh, so okay. That's I'll, interesting. I'll go and take a look at those logs and see, you know, um, just tick on my phone for the, you know, days that uh, amount of people that are there. And then you start seeing patterns in data, for instance, you know, almost no one on this property that I hunt in Southern Maryland goes there on a Wednesday or a Thursday. So those are two days where, um, you know, maybe Thursday afternoon is the day to hunt that property because now you've had 36 hours where the deer aren't, hearing or smelling humans and so maybe they're being a little more aggressive with their movement like that would just be one point of contact for how um that um you abstract away the, those things that we learn in the military intelligence world because they're grounded in years and years of pragmatism um you know they, they make plans if something doesn't work it gets changed 
and they zero it in a little more and they step away and they make some more changes. And, you know, after, you know, hundreds of years of doing this, you know, since, um, you know, the Revolutionary War is basically when our intelligence discipline started. George Washington is even famous for writing on how he conducted um, intelligence operations. We've come up with some pretty good plans. And those things can transfer and be abstracted away. And now if you're not planning for war, um, the the proper level of abstraction is um, targeting, right? So I abstract it to the targeting level. So the target changes. I'm not hunting a terrorist or I'm not hunting a a particular nation state actors, you know, line and block unit. I'm hunting a white-tailed deer. So that same planning cycle comes into play, which is uh, what, you know, one another point of contact might be what is the white tail strength well it's his nose okay so what can i do to account for that well i can look at a map i can pull the historical weather for a particular area for the past 30 years which is one of the things that i do with my application and then i can say this is the historical wind in this area and someone might say well why do you care about the past 30 years well i care about the past 30 years because those deer have been in that area for that long and they've been laying down scrape lines and they've been using the topography to their advantage and they know where the thermals generate and they know, and, and you know, the deer in the military, we have what are called non, non-commissioned officers, which are the people who train. They're like the teachers. You could think of them as the teachers from a school perspective. The students would be the soldiers who are you know executing the daily mission. And then you have your teachers who are non-commissioned officers and you have your officers where like your captains and generals and they're like the superintendents and principals and the school board. So your non-commissioned officers of the deer herd are the doe. And and they're the ones that are teaching the young deer, you know, you'll see, you'll see it. I'm sure you've seen it, or I know I have a doe will be, you know, whipping a a young buck or a, a fawn in line for acting like an idiot or doing something they shouldn't be doing. And you'll see them like, you know, push them to an area (laughs) um, and they're training them. Right. Right. And so when you have all of that going on, um, there's become, there, there are patterns in that data. And so, you know, I use the word a lot, but another point of contact surrounding that would be is if you go to a hunting property that someone has been hunting for, uh, hasn't been hunted in years and years and years, but you see like an old rickety stand, you know, it, you're, it serves you to put another stand up there. Mm-hmm. Like if somebody took the time to build a wooden stand and throw it up in that tree, um, that's because there was a particular, either a funnel or there was a thermal hub, or there was something happening at that area that funneled deer through that particular piece. So because, you know, the land doesn't change a ton, and the way that the sun rises and sets doesn't change a ton, and the prevailing wind doesn't change a ton, nine times out of ten, that's still going to be a productive stand. Um, So that's the same thing that goes with, you know, isolating those variables. So now I know, you know, when I use my app and I look at a particular piece of property as I'm testing it, I say, okay, 16% of the time it's a northwest wind. Um, uh, 13% of the time it's a north wind. So now I'm looking at 29% of the time on this property, it's a north to northwest wind. Okay, now I'm looking at the, I'm doing my digital scouting and I'm saying, where are the leeward areas that maybe have some draws where thermals could rise up in the morning? Um, and where is that top third at that the wind is coming over that would likely create like a intersection of where wind is moving over a, a leeward ridge? And in the morning, there is, scent being lifted from a bottom and then it creates that thermal tunnel effect now you've thought about now you've used your strengths right as a hunter which are technology 
and patterns in data. Humans are pattern recognition machines. We recognize patterns, whether it's visually or intrinsically. And we, I've accounted for that strength of the whitetail. And now I'm bending it. I'm using it against him or her, that whitetail, because now they have, um, uh, in the military, we call it, uh, oh, what's the term? Assumed compliance. So you're, you're showing someone that you're being compliant, even though you necessarily aren't being compliant. And it's the same thing with that whitetail, right? They've assumed that they are, they are navigating these woods in a way that um, uh, is to their benefit. But now I've bent that against them. Hmm. And uh, it's not serving them like it was before. And that's when you get to arrow a big deer or the doe you've been targeting or, or whatever, um, is that you've isolated those variables. And you've used the, whether or not a person knows it, <clears throat> And actually, it's one of the things I'm doing with the company is um, we have we brought out a, we have a pro staffer. His name's Taylor Chamberlain, and he kills something like I'm going to jack this number up, but I want to say it's something like I don't know in, into the 30s or 40s of deer a year. He hunts um, he hunts on um, land in Virginia where he gets to hunt essentially until the end of April, I believe, maybe into May. Yeah, I've heard, he I've heard interviews with him. Yeah, you're right. You're he he's, hunts all it's year. crazy. Yeah. And and when him and I talk, he has abstracted that same planning process. He but he's just done it pragmatically in the woods as a deer hunter. So we have another guy who I've just brought on who we actually haven't even announced yet, but his name is Ashley Sperlin. And he's a uh bron- he got a bronze star in Afghanistan as a JTAC. Um and in the special operations community, a JTAC's a, a particular type of person because um, not only are they participating in combat operations, but they're calling down fire, you know, while they're being shot at. So this is a guy who's using a map or a GPS, um, while he's being shot at to effectively, you know, get a AC-130 Spectre gunship to light up some bad guys. So he needs to have his field craft honed. Um, you know, my plan in the very immediate future is to get those two on a podcast, because what you're going to get is you're going to get someone like Taylor, who's been hunting forever and has had so, learned so many things just out there doing it and he's got no formal military training then you're gonna have a guy like ashley who's had it all beaten into him and then he's gone out and actually learned it again in in the field setting and just getting two guys like that on a podcast talking about how they both hunt i think is going to be very entertaining for the majority of people because you know there's something for everyone there yeah for sure yeah i'd love to have both those guys on the show sometime they're, absolutely they're yeah. they're uh i think i've heard of of Ashley, but I, I know for sure I've I've heard uh, Taylor before. Uh, Ashley I, was on a show called Top Shot. That's where I've heard that. I was going to ask you if that's was he the? Uh, did he do some time in the Air Force? Was he was he in yeah, the he Air Force? A, yeah, he was in the Air Force. Yeah, he was, okay. uh, and then he was in the Special Operations. Community that's why I heard that he name. Air Force. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was crazy. He was. I was really impressed with him on that show. How well he did. Yeah, he's and he's a great dude, um, and I spent a lot of time talking to him. But so I'm, I'm quite looking forward to, and and he's going to be putting out some awesome content for Spartan Forge as well too. Um, so you know, I hunt very, and I'll go up to like New York um, or Western Maryland or Pennsylvania, and a lot of places I'll backpack in and whitetail hunt. And you know, you got to have all of your stuff, you know, packed exactly how you want. So some of the videos and content that he's going to be generating for Spartan Forge is like, here's how I select boots. Um, for going on long trips into the woods. Here's how I pack my rucksack out or my bag to make sure, you know, I place my weight high and I have it organized in such a way. There's lots of, again, like, you know, pragmatic heuristics or like lessons learned 
that someone like him has developed while their you know life's on the line. So you know that they're hard learned lessons um, that I think will be really beneficial for the hunter. Yeah, definitely. Well, before we get before we get too ahead, too far ahead of our skis here, let's uh let's let's uh do kind of a a uh I don't know, just so our listeners know what we're talking about in the context here. Maybe it is I think this is the right term, a, a 20,000 or is it 30,000 feet? I can never remember. 30,000 30, 30, Yeah, 30,000 feet uh view of what Spartan Forge is. Can you just kind of sum up what Spartan Forge is, and specifically as we move in the direction of the outfitter uh service that you guys are offering? Hopefully you picked up by now that this interview with Bill is heavy on the data collection and analysis side of hunting. And uh, that makes me very happy because I'm a science teacher. And so science is all about data collection and analysis. Why do we do it? Well, we want to solve problems. We want to look for trends, look for patterns that then can help us make helpful predictions down the road and uh, hopefully help out our common man or even uh, on the fixing problem side of things uh, other species around us and so that's where i'm going to drive our tip of the day today we need to be like bill we each and every one of us as hunters need to start thinking scientifically that's what i tell my students all the time think scientifically and the reason i tell them that is because i think it creates a better community when we have people who are willing to analyze the facts to look at the data, to draw a conclusion after they've got that information. And so we can do that as hunters. And what I would encourage you to do is in some way, shape or form, maybe it's with your trail cam data, maybe it's just weather data and then looking at deer activity related to that weather data. Maybe it is just uh, looking at uh, statistics from the state each year and looking at, at harvest success rates things like that but i would encourage you to start collecting some of your own data on the hunting areas where you hunt and after several years you'll probably start to note notice some trends now with with good scientific data keeping the more variables that we can account for in our data the better we can you know isolate our one main variable that we're trying to to solve which obviously for deer hunting would be what are the deer up to and so go ahead start collecting some of that data on your own and let that help you make some wise decisions down the road and then when you uh you know maybe if you decide to use a product kind of like uh, what what uh, bill's talking about here with spartan forge if you decide to do that, you compare that with your data and maybe even uh, fill in some more gaps there for yourself. But that would be my tip of the day for you. If you can start collecting that data and not even just while hunting, you know, if you're able to see deer on your drive home from work or whatever on a regular basis or drive to work, note the time of day, note the weather conditions all the way down to like the humidity level. And, uh, you know, if you don't see deer, document that too. And uh, of course, there's tons of other variables that could be at play, but it's a good start that can hopefully help you down the road. All right, let's go ahead and get back to this interview here with Mr. Bill Thompson of Spartan Forge. Thanks for listening, everyone. 
Yeah, so Spartan Forge at the end of the day is a machine learning company. And very simply put, machine learning is um, high level pattern recognition that gets done by a machine using the neural process. So, um, you know, we didn't have the computational or computer capacity to do these kind of things, but the algorithms have been around for the algorithms have been around for a long time. And recently, when we started getting the um, computational capacity to do it, we could ingest large amounts of data and uh, make sense of it from a machine perspective and then make it palatable for a human to ingest, you know, what's being derived from that data. And so we're a machine learning company. And, um, you know, what very long story, very short. um, I started a partnership with some universities where we were getting color GPS data. And the color GPS data was, was, for whatever reason, a deer was being tranked. You know, they tranquilize the deer, net the deer, and then they put a collar on it. Or when it's born, if they know the mother, you know, if they have the mother and she's, you know, delivering a, a, a fawn or they find a fawn in the field or whatever, um, they will they will put a, a GPS collar on it. And they'll wear the collar for a year, three years, or in some cases we have um, eight years. I believe we have even a couple that were 10 years. Wow. And so um, the deer will, you know, just continue moving after that, after they're collared for the rest of their lives. And um, the data that they generate are basically GPS waypoints. So the, the biologists, for whatever reason, will launch these studies. You know, they might want to understand what the fawn recruitment rates are. They might want to understand the dota buck ratio or the migration patterns of mule deer or um, you know, predator interaction, all of these reasons that you might have a study. And then what I'll do is I'll, I'll build a relationship with that university and say, you know, I can train some neural networks with your data and I can tell you some stuff about your data that you may, might not otherwise know. Um, in exchange, if, if I can keep the data to train my neural network, um, there, there's a give and take there. And some guys are, and gals are all about that. Some people just give me the data and some people say no. <laughs> um, I would say it's, between five and 7% of the time, it's a yes straight out. And then, you know, another 10% of the time it's an exchange for data. And then the rest of the time it's a no, but, uh, I've been doing that for about seven years. And, um, about three years ago, we got a model that predicted pretty well. And, um, this last year we wanted to get the model out on the market. And the point wasn't to make a profit or to do anything other than people get people's input on the neural network. So we, we built what we call the foundational common operating picture. So if you were to go online and right now and look at what our offering is, it's just a very simple common operating picture that kind of shows you your updates for the area, the historical weather for the area, the current weather forecast, and then the, the key is the deer prediction. And the deer prediction is across six buckets. The first three buckets are movement and the movement we define is like low you know medium high and then a pattern of, of movement and uh that's been on the market since we missed the mark we wanted to release it you know we wanted to release it in like october but we were having aws problems and it was our first time any of us had developed anything that we weren't doing on a government infrastructure so um there was a bit of a learning curve there but we got it released um, in late November, almost December, and um, we got way more users than I anticipated getting, and uh, which is great. 
and we got a lot of responses from people and you know generally they were overwhelmingly positive i think i can count off the top of my head two negative or not even negative it's just people saying i'm not sure the prediction works i think maybe two of those but i probably at least 70 positive comments either through emails or through youtube comments or instagram and then you know a host of people sending pictures that they had um, of deer that they had harvested just simply because they were just listening to the predictions. So um, that was on the market last year. And <clears throat> this year we're, we're building a far more comprehensive application that's going to be hosted on um, Apple and iOS, or I'm sorry, iOS and um, Android in the App Store um, that we're looking to release uh, before the next hunting season. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the long and the short on, um, I would say that was probably more like a 10,000 foot <laughs> um, instead of 30,000 foot, but yeah. That's now there's a there's a military uh, classification for that right uh, ten thousand feet if you uh, parachute that low aren't you like a different uh different level of uh, like a skill or something like that for parachute? yeah so there's like static line and then there's there's schools we have hey ho hey low yeah that's um, right halo is yeah, that is so, that halo is that ten thousand feet uh yeah it's, I believe it's ten it's high altitude jump so you're jumping at you know something high above twenty thousand feet. And then low opening, and then you have hey ho, which is high altitude, high opening. So um, I, yeah, those are uh, those are that. So that was the um, the halo right there. Is the what halo. I, just gave you. I like yeah, it about the ten thousand version there. <laughs> oh man, no, I'm, I know I'm a nerd. I like to I like to <laughs> I like to learn all sorts of different things. So. And I, I usually, I have, I, I store like these weird memories in my head and then uh, I bring them out in like a 75% correct context or uh, the right, sort of the right term. So I apologize to everyone listening in. Uh, so an incredible product. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you guys, we're still just scratching the surface here for what this is capable of. But as you can see, it's built off of... Um, you know, really solid data as far as what is available out there, there. It doesn't get, it doesn't really get better for data because these callers, they're following these deer throughout their, you know, hopeful normal lifespan, you know, but that's part of the data too. You know, if a deer gets hit by a car or gets uh, harvested or gets killed by a predator or something like that, you know, that's, that's part of being a deer too. And so all of that, uh, being able to integrate that into uh, the the neural network here, as as uh, Bill has told us about, that's that's where this starts to develop. You know, a pattern that is predictable. And uh, you know, one of the things you have advertised on your uh, website, and we've talked about several times, is the hundreds of years of data, the deer years, right? So, so from, from what you've been able to gather and can you, can you give us that? Now, I think you might've mentioned it once already, but can you give us that, that number of years of data that you guys have access to already? Yeah. So if you were to add it all up temporally, it would be about four. It's, I think we just eclipsed 400 years. Man, that's, that's crazy. That's a, that's a lot of data to dive into. And so, then comes, you know, the natural question, sorting all this data out to make this, these predictions and not just the, 
the deer collar data to sort through. But one of the things that you've mentioned in previous conversations is, and, and this is really where, you know, if you're, if you're listening into this and you're saying, Hey, aren't there already some things out there that kind of do this? And the answer, the, the, the short answer to that is, yeah, there, there are some things out there that are similar to this, but where Bill's model differs greatly well, there's several ways that it differs greatly. But one of the things that was most striking to me was how region-specific this data is that's being sorted. And so that's where it's factoring in this this weather data uh, along with the collar data and um, some other factors, too. I, I think, uh, um, if I remember correctly, Bill, uh, topography is going to start entering into the picture here soon. And... Yep. Um, and uh, the, I mean, you guys go down to the the level of detail of like how is today's humidity affecting the prediction, right? Yep, absolutely. There's uh, 20 different weather variables that we use um, across the model, and um, it, it's associated um, tightly correlated with uh, from a time perspective um, on every you know movement vector or or uh, movement line that a, that a buck or a doe generates whenever they move in result of either, you know, approaching a breeding window or approaching, you know, a storm front or a flood or the result of some kind of environmental change. Uh, all of those things are accounted for. And that's the great thing about neural networks is um, if you were to, you know, have someone look at 400 years of deer data um, and correlate it with all of those weather points, it would take them, you know, more time than they have to be alive to do that type of work and to distill and get those patterns and then to test those patterns. So that's, that's kind of the, um, the, I guess the, the magic. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting to, to really look at. And I mean, like I, like I've said earlier in this conversation, it's just, it's, it's mind blowing to consider the level of detail this goes into. Uh, but it makes a lot of sense too. I mean, when you, when you really think about it, these are all factors that affect how we act, you know, um, I was, let's see here. I think is when we interviewed uh, Garrett Fike on hunting the rut back at, clear back in episode 12. We talked about how even our pets, you know, like our dog that we have in our house picks up on certain cues from us or certain, mm -hmm. certain environmental factors that are, are present and it responds in a certain way. And so that's, I mean, that's really what, what these predictions are trying to do. They're trying to say, okay, here's, here's what's being, here's the hand that's being dealt to the deer. What's the deer going to do? And, uh, it, it really starts to make sense when you, you look at all these different factors that, that Bill and his team have, have, uh, put into, their model. It makes, it makes a lot of sense, honestly. Now there are some other key areas that, you know, really services that are being offered eventually, as, as Bill said, there, there's still a lot of development going on right now, even though there is a really useful product already available. Um, a lot of the stuff still is coming very soon. Um, I feel like, you know, we're, we are only going to be able to scratch the surface in this interview, and, and we definitely need to bring you back on, uh, I think, again in the future, maybe after this rolls out and, uh, you know, really hit with with our listeners what is here uh, and, and what can be useful to them. But, uh, you know, one of the features that really 
stuck out to me. There, there's really two of them from our previous conversations. One was uh, like basically a way to determine what the food sources are in the area that you're hunting in. Can, can you kind of explain that to, uh, I'm butchering this, I know, but could you, could you uh, explain what exactly that app capability will be? Yeah. So there's, there's, there's two, that there's two inside of this, we, we call it the Intel tab in there. Oh, and in okay, the Intel sure. tab, um, there's also a food source tab as well. So like for Iowa, uh, to put it in perspective for you in Iowa there, what it'll go through um, on the, on the Intel tab is it'll talk about things like your largest tracts of public land in the state. And then it'll talk about notable public lands. So notable public lands would be when we see in the state records, um, you know, Boone and Crockett or Pope and Young deer percentages of deer coming out of um, certain public land tracts. So um, I, I believe one of them there um, in your state is DeKalb. Um, and then there's another one, I believe it's called Los Hills. Or L O E S S Los Hills. Los yeah. Hills. Yep. So th those ones have pretty good concentrations of deer and have had produced large deer coming hmm. out of them. And then they have it goes into your tip, you know, your typical Boone and Crockett records, non-typical, typical Pope and Young records. And it talks about the numbers of hunter in the states, um, the average days per hunter, and then that breaks it down by weapon platform. So um, I'm looking at your stats for Iowa. And you know, your average days per hunter in Iowa for archery is 12 days. Um, for a yeah. rifle, it's six. Um, and then it says it goes into the deer harvest per hunter. It talks about, and then the, this harvest success by platform, it goes into the number of deer that are in the state, the number of tags that were given out for the previous year, the number of, that were harvested, um, goes into the doe and buck ratio, doe to, doe to buck ratio of the, um, observed, um, both by biologists and by hunters in the area. And then that goes from there to like your food sources. So obviously in, um, in Iowa, it's heavily agricultural, um, a ton of the food source is agricultural, but mm -hmm. we break it down by there's the types of brows. So, you know, woody brows, um, herbaceous and then hard and soft mast brows or food. And, um, so what we do in, in the app there is it breaks down and provides pictures for each one of those things. So if you're doing some scouting in the woods and you're either never been to Iowa before, or you just don't know what, you know, hickory or beach looks like. Hmm. Um, those pictures will be available in the app and, uh, hunters will be able to, you know, get a better understanding of the area that they're in, especially when they start going into places that they've never been before. It kind of just gives them that again, the isolating those information sources and presenting them to the hunter to help them make sense of the woods. Oh, that's, that's huge. And, you know, I've talked with some people who have interest in coming to Iowa as an out of state hunter and, uh, maybe maybe to hunt deer or maybe even another thing that i think this could be really handy for um that that intel tab that you mentioned shed hunting you know um some Absolutely. sometimes people want to go to a big buck state and uh you know it might tags can be expensive but shed hunting is free and um right having that kind of information but also um as i was listening to that uh you mentioned even numbers of of deer in a state i mean this could be something that could be really helpful to uh you know state biologists and uh you know people who are who are you know monitoring this stuff for a job i mean just to be able to pull that up right on your right on your phone i mean that's that's really useful data uh, in many different applications i would think so yeah 
Yeah, we're going to start aggregating and then ranking that data as well. So when we start talking about another stat, I don't know if I mentioned it or not, but um, Iowa, I believe, is in the lower realm, actually, when it comes to public land available. But It is, yes. For, 48th, right? Yep. You guys sit at 0.6% of the land is publicly available. And like to give you a point of contact there, um, other states, let me see, like I think Colorado is very high. So let me just look and see, because I can tell you right off the top of my, not the top of my head. That's a lie. I can tell you by looking at um, the stats that we've aggregated um, in Colorado, the public land is, let's see, um, 13%. So you start talking about, you know, when you start talking about, there's, I believe that there's a, in Colorado, well, not, I believe I can scroll down here and look. They have a the Comanche National Grassland is five hundred thousand square acres. <laughs> you just think about that. That's Man. I don't know how big that is, but that's bigger than I can conceptualize. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's just a place to go and hunt. And I'm not trying to be down on Iowa. Obviously, you know the farmland out there makes private land ownership highly, um, you know, desirable. So right. um, I was just saying, but when it comes to an out of state hunt being able to aggregate and then rank those, those types of things um, to, to a public land hunter who doesn't own any land and wants to maybe get out of the state. That's highly, highly desirable. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. It, it shows what opportunity exists really, you know, you, what, what's reality going to be if I apply for a tag in this state? Well, take a look yep. at what the, what the public land is. And then some of those other, those other uh, statistics that you mentioned in there, you know, where are these trophy quality, you know, class bucks coming from and, um, you know, what the hunter density is and that kind of thing. I think that's all really, really handy for somebody who's wanting to plan a out of state hunt, especially, you know, somebody like you who's living all the way out in Maryland, coming all the way across the country to go hunt somewhere. You, you don't want to, you don't want to, um, make that a futile attempt, you know, or make. Yeah. And, and again, it's just, you know, using technology to isolate those variables. You know, the second point of contact there that I didn't talk about was, um, you know, your state has 400, I think it's 464,000 deer. Let me make sure. Hmm. Yeah. Total deer population as of 2019 is 460,000. 2020, it's 445,000. And then you go to Colorado and the total state population in 2019 was 23,000. And the total state population of whitetail in 2020 is 23,500. Hmm. So, you know, you're talking about an order of magnitude. Yeah. Right. On the difference between deer populations. Right. So another thing to consider yeah definitely yep figuring out where's the where's the place to go get it done yeah for right. sure well and that that brings up another point that i i i'm going to uh you know i get maybe the right word here is preemptively i'm going to ask you a question uh you know about how much uh, technology do we bring into hunting and i think that that would be a good point to to make but we'll, we'll save that here for a minute because i think we need to uh, preemptively address Another question that I think our listeners are going to have, which is, and you mentioned this a little bit, you ha you've had some, you know, good feedback from people who've been using the earliest model so far. And you, you even mentioned that it was far more people than uh, you really anticipated, which is cool. I think it's really cool. I think it shows that, that people are wanting something like this. Um, even before the, the fullest form of it is available. But, um, 
how so we can talk about this different data uh, that we're that you you know that you have access to we can talk about these different factors that we're applying but then people are probably going to sit here and say well you know what i know this one guy who's a really really good hunter and um even he you know can't after all his years of hunting he's he still says that um he, you know deer are pretty much uh impossible to to totally figure out and so you know bill this sounds great and everything but how i mean how accurate is this really like how how close are your predictions really matching up with what reality ends up being yeah so there's a few things i can hit there and i guess the first thing would be is when someone says you know deer are you know too it's too difficult to to figure deer out basically so there's there's some truth there because you know, when we talk about the um, the efficacy or how well our neural network predicts, as we ingest new data that we've never seen before, we can get quickly get a very good evaluation of the model by throwing, measuring that data, finding out which days were the most productive sure. during daylight hours for a hunter, and then just matching that up to how our neural network produced. And and when we have a large volume of data, which for right now it's starting to actually be pretty balanced. When we first started, the the first the earliest instantiation of the the neural network, our largest volume was in the southeast. But we would, you know, routinely predict between 65 and 71 percent down there, and then across the board, we were predicting between 61 and 71 percent of the time. Wow! And and what basic what that basically means is is if we had five days of brand new deer data that we had never seen. That the that the model would 60% of the time predict which days were going to be what level of movement. And those levels of movement again are where the deer basically in their core area during hunting hours. Were they in had they moved into a transition area during hunting hours or were they full range? Hmm. And what that means is is basically core area means if you want to kill a deer on that day, you need to be as close to their bedroom as possible. And then what transition area means is Right outside of their areas, if, or outside of their core areas, there might be like a scrape line or a sure. a meeting place where deer, like a common scrape that a primary scrape that deer all hit, or a rub line that a buck is making. Those would be the transition areas. And then full range, I always explain as you know, when you're driving to work and you see a bunch of deer in a field where you never see deer, except for at night, but they're there at 2 p.m. That would be a full range day. Okay. So the model predicts uh you know and we can measure it and it's you know it's very measurable there's the model finds patterns in the deer movement and then it it, it forecasts them so when a hunter might say something like well you know my experience has been that deer are highly individualistic well there are deer that there are individuals just like there are people who are individuals um so and, and to kind of drive that point that that home even more you could think i always make the joke about the Chuck Norris of deer. <laughs> and what I mean by that is if you have, you know, a bunch of people running around in the jungle and somebody drops, you know, a helicopter load of Big Macs, you know, 70% of people are going to run towards that thing and either try <laughs> to, you know, get as many Big Macs as they can, or they're going to wait till night and they're going to get on those Big Macs. But then there's going to be the Chuck Norris deer <laughs> that's going to hear the helicopter <laughs> Or even see lots of deer heading in one area, and he's just going to go in the other direction. Yep. Right. So 
Yep. And and if you have a buddy who's a prolific hunter, those are probably most of the deer that he's hunting, right? Right. But when we talk about this model, this model is predicting for the general deer. So this is abstracted from the set of deer. So this is just, you know, the the and, and how I explain that is is that the model is trying to baseline the imperatives from an instinctual level that a deer has to feed or to mate. So, you know, all of us are born with those, you know, and you as a biologist could probably speak to this better than I could, or as a scientist could speak to this better than I could in a biology teacher is, you know, when we get cold, we get goosebumps, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, you know, can be predictable, or you can make a, you know, a scientific inquiry into the process of how a human is thermoregulated. Sure. And, and then you can test that in a lab and validate it. And, and as it relates to, you know, what could you say the way that people navigate a particular area, you know, we're going to use all things equal. We're going to use the easiest path from a to B, right? Right. So somebody can model that and they can say, this is generally how humans, this is the amount of grade and terrain difference that will, that will funnel human movement. So it's the same thing with deer, right? They have a, a basal set of instincts that they come to the table with. And then, like you you said before, I think maybe it was before we talked even, but um, like with dogs, they um, get trained, and that's what humans do with deer, whether or not they know it, is they train them. And uh, you know, the last time that we had talked, we had um, kind of talked about, I believe, I believe we had had the conversation about young pink sept, and and how it came down to how people train animals. And, you know, positive reinforcement versus negative reinforcement. And um, and it's the same thing with deer, right? That smart buck only needs one, you know, he only needs to be t- told once what danger means. And right. that goes back to dropping the cheeseburgers in the middle of the woods. You only have to tell Chuck Norris one time. You'll never see Chuck Norris anywhere near the um, the cheeseburgers, right? Right. So this model trains for the is trained to for the general deer and general deer movement. Now the interesting thing about that, and something I like, you know, is interesting is it seems that bucks still have the biological imperative to move more in certain situations, especially in the north, when you have lowering pressure and you have you know lowering temperature and rising pressure, I should say. Um, but they will stay in their core area while they're doing it. So whereas a two and a half year old buck will sense a change in the environmental um, an environmental change around them, you might see those deer out on a field feeding earlier, but you're not going to see a 160 inch deer out there. But what you will see in the GPS data is that 160 inch deer is getting up and moving and readjusting his bed and and feeding and pooping in his core area more often than he otherwise would. Huh. He's just not leaving his core area. So how does that translate for general deer movement? Well, for me, when I see a full range day, I'm still go. If I'm hunting a big buck, I'm still going into the bedding. But what I do know out of his 300 yards of core area, I'm much more likely to see him in that 300 yard space than I otherwise would be on a core movement day. Maybe he's just staying in a hundred yards. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, like like yeah, in other sure. words, he's getting up and moving more because there's a biological imperative, but he's just like quelling it by not right. you know running out to the field because he's been trained and he's particularly wary and that's why he's got a huge rack on the top of his head yeah, right right because he pays attention to these things and he doesn't you know i should say i'm talking like the deer is making you know conscious decisions that's not what's happening it's been trained right right it's, or at it's least conditioning it's yep. conditioned right and um 
you know, I, you know, I, I think it was again, you know, they, they can train pigeons to, um, if you ever want to have an interesting read of a scientific scientific paper, there was pigeons that were trained to um, guide missiles okay, before yeah. radar technology. Was yeah, I think I've heard of that before. Yeah, that's, that's insane. <laughs> so if a pigeon can do that, don't think that that buck hasn't patterned you. Right. Is, I guess what I'm saying, right? Because they have, and it's just like a dog, right? Like if you train a dog through negative reinforcement, you can create a desire, or a predictable outcome um, just based on the way that you act around that dog, right? Now it's yeah. going to act like it's beaten or something. And it doesn't, it's not that it's scared of you, but it knows to act scared or like a wolf, you know, again, it's talking about instincts, um, a wolf, right? Um, when there's a, uh, a dominance dispute between two wolves, the wolf that knows it's lost will just roll over and show its neck and its belly. Right. Dogs today still do that. Yep. Um, and it's, you know, it's again, instinct and it's conditioned instinct that it's, Oh, I've lost. Now I need to show them this thing, my neck and I hope it doesn't rip it out <laughs> right? because, because yeah. it, because it sees some value in me being a part of the pack. So it's the same thing with deer. Um, another interesting thing there I'll quit because I can drone about this all day long is, um, I've seen where these mature bucks will wind feeding locations, but we have the camera data from these universities that are running them and the bucks not that buck will wind the area during hunting hours, but he won't go anywhere near it until 1am. Man, that is so, and that's what everybody wonders about, you know, when they're sitting there not seeing anything. And so you've actually been able to match up the, the camera and I assume some of that data is probably radio collar too, right? No, that's absolutely how we're doing it. So I'm watching the GPS points. And it's that's insane. Because we'll have on a lot of these, especially when colleges are doing it on areas, these colleges will get permission to call their deer in areas like national forests or hunting clubs. So the hunters of these hunting clubs will have their permanent stands. And, you know, everyone goes into that stand and then, you know, they kill a lot of great three-year-old deer from these stands. But then the five and six and seven and eight and nine and 10 year old deer that are on that property, um, you know, probably watched a buddy take one in the boiler room <laughs> and then decided the corn wasn't worth it. <laughs> and now all he does is he uses that area to wind for hot does or humans and then waits until cover of night. That's yeah, that is, that is so interesting because what Hunter that's hunted long enough has not wondered that exact thing. You know, how much does this, how much does this deer know about what I am up to right now? And, uh, yeah, that's the data to, that's the data to show it right there. Now, I think you also mentioned too, like, uh, the same thing can be true with, um, and again, this is in from previous conversations, but it, there's even been some data to show that they'll do the same with trail cameras, right? Yep. So there's, I'm going to jack up where this data was from because now there's too much of it for me to start remembering all of these stories. And I can only focus in on a few deer. But, yes, there's absolutely trail camera data where the bucks – so these these ones that I'm thinking of, and I believe the ones that I told you about were they had cameras and collared deer on a property. And there was a scrape line that they put um, – I think there were three or four different scrapes. One of them was primary at any rate um unless it unless it was like right on top of the peak rut you 
you know, you would not see the three or four year old deers working these scrapes. All you do is see them scenting the scrapes, checking the scent on the scrapes, what does had worked them or other bucks might've been moving into their areas that they weren't aware of or what new travelers were there. You know, I can only make inferences about what the bucks were doing, but essentially they were just on the downwind side of these. And sometimes they'd be 50 to a hundred yards away from them. And they would just slowly walk the downwind side of these scrape lines and they would not go work the scrapes, but on, you know, so if you're a hunter and you're just pulling scrape cameras and you're not looking for that faint trail, you know, 15, 20, 30 yards down for the, from again, from the majority of the time wind that is on that property, um, you'll, uh, you'll hear the story and it's funny. People will say, you know, I had a brand new buck I've never seen anywhere before on anything. And, and he just showed up out of nowhere and I kill him. And when I look at the data, yes, bucks do do like an excursion where they will um, leave their, you know, total home range and they'll just go out somewhere either looking for the first hot doe or it just seems to be something it's in almost all of the bucks data. They'll just do this like one off, just run out to the middle of nowhere. It seems like, or go to this different area sometimes the bucks will go to the same areas. They'll just go to like either where they were brought up or something. I don't know, not brought up where they were born or something. A couple of bucks I can think of would go back to where they were born, but then they'll come back and they'll continue in that area. So yes, that happens. But also I know for a fact, because um, I talked to one of the, hunt one of the hunters on the property was a buddy, a guy who I've become friends with where we get property data from them. In fact, we get live access to their property data. They still have buck or bucks and does that are tagged on this property and I can log on at any time and see where the doe are and what they're doing. But the people who hunt this area don't get access to that data, obviously, because it wouldn't be fair chase. And um, he had said a buddy of his had killed a deer and they're like, There's, we, we kill, they kept calling it a traveler deer. Well, when we got the collar off and we were looking through the data, that buck had been living on that property and had not had been, you know, at some points, 30 yards from stands that were actively being hunted and nobody had seen the deer. Wow. And he just, again, was this buck did not use the trails that the does used. He would go downwind of the trails that the other bucks used. He didn't use the other trails that the bucks used. He almost never scraped. He had his own scrapes in his area that he would work. And it was almost, I almost start to th start thinking about this activity and it's strange because I'm obviously what I'm doing is um, projecting human, you know, uh, activity or I'm trying to make sense of it by projecting, you know, what's the, what's the, what's the term? Yeah. yeah Anthropomorphizing yes, yes. Um, the animal, but it's almost like when someone has like a tick, you know, and they can't help but do something. That's how I think about scraping and rubbing and things like they can't help but do it. So the, the, the behavior doesn't get cut out. They just do it in like their core area and they do it nowhere else. So it like scratches the itch. So, so, the, so this buck would just stay in his area. Um, I'm reminded of a buck and a doe that did this. Well, this buck from this property that they all thought was like a traveler buck. And it's like, nope, that buck's GPS showed that he had been living there since he was two years old. And that you guys so just never crazy. saw him. He was not showing up on your cameras. Um, and or you hadn't put cameras in the right places where they needed a camera. It was like in his core area, which is where he spent something. I want to say it was something like 80 percent of his time. And then otherwise, when he went outside of his other times, it was just to scent these areas that he knew he wanted to avoid. 
and he would actually feed in some flats down by a river where no one hunted because they thought it was not good hunting. So what this buck figured out was, I never saw anyone down there, so it's safe. Or I never smelled anyone down there, so it's safe. Again, I'm not saying he thought that, but that's the pattern that developed out of the way this buck moved. That would be the majority of his excursions out of his core area. But I'm reminded of him and this other doe where it's like, if you're not on top of their beds, you're not killing it and you're not seeing it. Yeah, that is that is really interesting information. And like I said earlier, I mean, these are answering questions that I think every hunter has probably had. And just to know what what if we could see like they see or more so smell like they smell, you know, how much more is going on than what we realize. And, uh, you know, I think probably here in my neck of the woods, where this applies the most it, and this kind of starts uh, getting me here to uh, my burning question segment I have for you here just some some uh, I don't know I guess we call them rapid fire for uh, maybe what some capabilities that you have envisioned for this but also what could come down the line but but here in Iowa one of the things that again I've only been hunting this will be my seventh year of deer hunting this year um, one of the things that that uh took me a while to understand was how much deer bed in standing corn and uh you know you just don't i think the average hunter probably just doesn't really think about that you know we the average person thinks oh deer live in the woods right and and uh you got to go near the woods well i I started to find out um that these deer would just kind of you know right around the deer moving time of the night just kind of appear out of virtually no cover other than than corn and uh you know that kind of illustrates what could be going on that we have no idea about and uh the, yet the deer know exactly where we're at and they they know if if uh like you said if they live long enough they know how to skirt around us totally undetected and um again being able to apply the right the right factors and and uh pick up on the right patterns how they how they uh relate to those factors could make all the difference in in jumping up an age class and in deer that now becomes a you know a feasible uh reality yeah I, i think you know the the level of accuracy that your model has that 60 to 70 percent accuracy is just phenomenal i mean how many times I remember I talked about this with uh, uh, the guy who normally be co-hosting with me tonight. He was, he he was busy with something else. Um, He's actually from kind of your neck in the woods. He's from Delaware, but um, I was telling him, you know, of course he's been hunting all of his life, well over 30 years of hunting experience. And uh, I, I was like, you know, I hit this point during the rut this year where uh, I was, I was, um, you know, following, following some other deer forecasting app and it was supposed to be good. And I, you know, just historically over the day on the calendar, it was supposed to be a good day. And I got there and I just like, could not, I had, I had a hang on stand with me, you know, that I was, that I was, uh, hiking in with, with, with stick climbing sticks. And I just like, like I hit this, this, uh, you know, freeze up 
where it's like, all right, I can't decide where I want to be. I, you know, I want to be near this, this dough bedding area, downwind of the dough bedding area. I want to, but having a tool like that with that level of predictability, I think will really help people get through those freeze up moments of, especially for new hunters where, you know, you're just trying to remember everything that you've read, listened to, um, observed from other friends or whatever, and you're trying to apply it. But, um, I would say that the, the average that, you know, a, a good hunter probably hits for, for predictability, just based on all that stuff, you know, nowhere near 66%. <laughs> Caribou, elk, moose, antelope, coos deer, trophy whitetails, oryx, sika deer, doll sheep, and mule deer. What do all these critters have in common besides their delicious backstraps? They can't all be hunted in the same state, meaning that at least one of these game species will require you to purchase a non-resident hunting license and tag in order to hunt them. Now the rules of the tag application game are wildly diverse from state to state. And if you are looking to complete a bucket list hunt, you are going to want some help to make sure you are setting yourself up for the best opportunity possible. And that's where tag application and hunt planning agent, Alex Gruen of East to West Hunts can really help you out. If you've listened to any of the episodes we've had here on the First Gen Hunter podcast with our buddy Alex, then you know there isn't anyone who cares more about the details of tag acquisition than him. Alex not only will help you through the hoops of the tag application process, but he will also help you plan the details of your trip that will get you where you need to be in order to have your best chance at filling your tag. And he is offering a 10% discount for First Gen Hunter podcast listeners such as yourself. All you have to do is purchase a service through his website, alexgruen.com. That's A-L-E-X-G-R-U-I-N.com and use the code FIRSTGEN10 at checkout. F-I-R-S-T-G-E-N, the number 10, and you will receive 10% off the hunt of your lifetime. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think it's because, and again, I I keep saying this because I feel like of most of the podcasts I go, I go on to, I can't, I don't get to have this type of discussion where I get to, or at least, you know, when we talk, you know, on our, on our off time, talk about statistics and, you know, how statistical models or regression models work or how data is compiled, accumulated in the analysis and how that's done um, gets lost because it's boring, right? Statistics, it gets lost on people. Um, but you know, as I was evaluating other prediction apps, or I'm just talking to buddies who I really value their opinion when it comes to deer hunting, because they're people who have been doing it forever. There's certainly something. Okay. So the first thing I should say is these people that I just talked about, all of them have big deer on the wall. But I, I think, and again, I'm not, I can't get into their data or their heads or how they act or how they think, but I think has, it has more to do with the amount of time that they're spending a field planning and preparing for the hunt 
and less about the timing. Like in other words, you can plan the crap out of where you need to be. And then at that point, it's just, you know, if you can spend that much time in the off season, like these are guys who, you know, the odds are in the spring, they're scouting. Like when you talk to them, they're probably scouting. You know, one of the guys that I'm talking about would be like a Johnny Stewart type who's on our pro staff. Almost every time I talk to him, if he's not working, he's scouting. If he has two hours, he's got a spot near him. He's going to scout. And and that's he is going to be successful because he puts that much work in the preseason and um, and, and during, you know, shed antler. Um, but for people who don't have that kind of time, again, it's that variable analysis. And then what can you do for that? And what you can do for that is understand general deer behavior. And I can tell you that when I I get those, I'll ask those people and people that have built these models or I listen to their to them on podcasts and how they will build this like, you know, and if type statements to prescribe when they hunt. And then if you try to, you know, I pulled one out of like an outdoor life from a a few years ago too, that I used all of them basically predict commensurate with the amount of buckets they have to pull the results. So in other words, and I don't think any of them did any better than whatever their number was. So statistically it was like, if you had a four sided die, right. And it was like, you know, one, two, three, or four for movement you're just as good to roll the dice as you are to make a guess because there's too many factors for the, because we'd like to think about things linearly and we like to think about things. This is like, well, if it's like this, then it's like this, right? But what we're not doing is saying what the neural network does and what we don't do is what has been the last two weeks of movement and what were the last two weeks of weather like, and how does that factor into today? In other words, especially up where you're at favorable feeding days has a lot to do with whether or not barometric pressure shifts will lead to a movement uptick or downtick. In other words, if I'm a buck, especially a mature wise old buck, that's, you know, been there and seen it or matriarch doe and, you know, she's seven or eight years old. If she's had, or he's had, you know, nine or 10 favorable feeding days in the last 14 days, and there's a huge storm coming, the data is clear that they will try to sit out the storm just on their bellies with their fat stores if they've had a ton of favorable feeding days leading up to that storm. Like, like that is crystal clear in the data. And nobody asked that question. You know what I mean? That's the first time I've ever heard that specific. It's always what is, like you said, okay, this is happening. So then pressure's rising, temperature's down. Deer should be moving. Right. And then it's like, I didn't see the deer today. And it's like, well, what has been, like how much fat, because what the network will do is it'll say, it'll look over time and it's making guesses on how much fat must be on these deer. Right. And then for the calculus for the deer is, is it worth it for me to risk my neck? Are my fat levels at a sufficient level where I can sit out a storm? And most deer will try to sit out a storm. And, but then what happens is, is they sit out a storm and then they really don't have good favorable feeding days or visibility is down. And then there's another t- uptick coming and then another storm. Now you can start talking about, okay, the tail end of that storm, there's probably going to be an uptick in movement because now you've had deer on their bellies and fat stores have deplenished and, and um, need to be replenished. And now they're going to feed. 
So it's, it's, it's not a simple, like, whether he's doing this, you're going to do this. It's just, you know, I, it's getting to, and I'm not trying to sound cavalier. Please, please believe me when, when I say this, I'm not trying to sound flippant, but it almost is getting cringy to me when I hear someone say, well, it's going to be like this this weekend. So deer are going to be moving because it's just almost never the case. And it's, I'm not saying I know better. I'm not, I don't, but I just, I look like for me, I get to pull, I call it the meta SD card, <laughs> right? Like yeah. I get, I get, you know, eight years of 15 beers, um, GPS movement data from, you know, Southwest Ohio for a period of time. I'm pulling like a meta deer SD card and I get just as excited as any of your listeners or yourself probably does. I know, or that I do about a deer camera, I get 15 times excited about, you know, getting new data because I'll, I'll, I initially go for the mature deer and I look at how they look. I map the weather events temporally, then I map the movement bell curves, and then I just sit there and I compare them. And it just starts becoming obvious that, you know, a lot of times, especially these mature animals know, um, it's best to try to sit those things out because what they don't want to do is go out. Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm talking like I know these deer and I don't. It seems to me that they associate some risk with, you know, especially in the winter where you're at with going out to a place and trying to aggressively feed and, 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 and maybe, you know, getting caught in a field or struck by a car or whatever. It seems to be that the best course of action from an evolutionary perspective is just sit on their belly. And let the storm pass. And then once it's done, go back to their normal pattern, which makes sense if you think about it. But we've gotten bent around this thing where somebody at some point did a study where they saw these deer in this area seem to move every time. Um, and then we're not thinking about what like the human factors involved in that data or the bias that comes from the analysis. But, you know, I get to remove that ballot, a bias whenever I'm just looking at the hardcore movement metrics associated with weather events. So, you know, that's a long, really, I've really gone off of on a tangent here. So that's, sorry about no, that. that's, that's good. I, I think it, it shows the value of, of what Spartan Forge is, is offering. And, and also it, it does bring up a, a really uh, important consideration that again, I've never, I've never thought of and have never heard. And I've listened to, I mean, at this point, probably thousands of hours of deer hunting podcasts through the years. And I, that, that is the first time I have ever heard somebody bring up that factor. What, you know, not just being so linear with it, with, okay, this is what's happening now. What's, what's going to happen tomorrow as a result of what's happening right now. No, no, it's, it's all of this for, for weeks leading up and for years back, similar situations how does that apply how does that apply to the here and now that's uh that's a much yeah. more thorough uh application of of data yeah yeah and it's like people want you know and, and i'm the same way so i'm not again i'm not trying to sound cavalier here or flippant but people like easy answers yeah yep and and, and i do i know i do right especially when it comes to things that i don't want to think about so you know it's either do i just go with you know Hey, pressure is falling or temperature is falling and pressure is rising. So deer moving, boom, you know, I get to go do what I want. Now I get to hunt, which is what I wanted to do in the first place. Right. You know, all my app is telling you is how proximally I'm not saying people should or should not hunt on certain days. Look, if you have the day off, 
hunt, right? If you got the time or, you know, what I call the kitchen pass <laughs> to go and hunt, hunt. What my app's telling you is there's two things I think right now that you can get from the app is how close should I be to the bedding area as it relates to it? And if the deer aren't like, if I only own, like when I, when I was living in Maryland, I hunted 99% of the land I had was public land. And then, but I did have a, a golf course owner that would allow me to at, he, hunt maybe two acres of like this forest behind this, like number six green on this golf course. But what it really did for me was it gave me Southern access to a public stand of land that everyone had to access from the North. So everyone I was accessing it from the North had to walk miles to get to where I could get in about 15 minutes. And it gave me fantastic access to deer. And it really was, you know, the genesis of me seeing more deer in a day than I'd ever see because the deer knew for 10 years, hunters had only been approaching from one way and the flurry of activities I could see there and just the way that those deer had been trained and patterned, um, you know, just really allowed me to figure it out. But, but if I were just hunting that, that piece, just that golf course piece, what you could, another thing you can use the app for is if you know, the deer aren't betting on your property. In other words, you've got like a feeder and you just want to kill doe to put meat on the table, right? Or kill a buck, small buck to put meat on the table, which is fine by me. Like by all means. In fact, that's I, most of my hunting is meat hunting. Um, and if you want to do that, <clears throat> a good thing to use the app for is hunt them on full range days. Just on a day where you know the deer are going to be moving early for whatever reason. Um, then you go and lay your scent down in that land because what's going to happen otherwise is you're laying your scent down on a core movement day and you're, you've gone by the time those deer come in there and they know you've been there and now you're patterning them to get later and later and later. So just listen to the app, wait for that full range day. And I guarantee you deer will show up during daylight hours because you've lit, because a, you've just laid off of the land and you've made them feel comfortable in there. But B you've now picked the statistically viable time for them to come and they will come if you've not been on the land. So, you know, just, you know, two, two scenarios, I guess, on ways that people can use the app. Well, I think that, I think that is sound advice there. And, and again, answers, especially, you know, what you just mentioned there with, uh, you know, the, the betting scenario, you know, I've actually had situations where, uh, you know, I'll be out hunting and I'll be, I'll send a picture of my Onyx location or something while I'm hunting to a friend that knows more about hunting than I do. And I'll be like, all right, here I am. Then I'll draw some, you know, I'll screenshot my map and then I'll, I'll do like, you know, some giant orange X over here near where I perceive to be good betting. I'll be like, here's the betting. Do you think I'm close enough? Do you think I'm, you know, that answers that exact question right there of, of, uh, how close you should be. And, and, uh, then, you know, I think too, it helps from the human side of things analyze, okay, you know, this the the app says that all deer movement is going to be mostly confined to the core area well you know if you're hunting in a place like maybe uh missouri that opens up on september 1 or uh, or our good friend brandon who normally co-hosts uh from delaware opens up on september 1 well if on september 5th that's all the deer are doing that day, then you probably should leave the deer alone that day and, right, exactly. uh, and wait till that more valuable point in the season when, you know, closer to the rut or something like that, when you can maybe capitalize a little bit better, but yeah, you know, definitely don't want to screw up your season. 
that first that first week. So oh, super Absolutely. super valuable information there for sure. Well, um, let's see here. I I kind of wanted to go. So so there is one. I'm, I'm trying to decide here if I want to pull an audible or not. Sorry, everyone. My allergies are like raining down on me now. Uh, but um, the uh, the thing that I think I'm going to do is I was going to do burning questions next, just kind of rapid fire. But I imagine some people, there's a question that's just in the back of someone's head. And maybe they're like, you know what? This is not for me at all because how much technology is too much technology to bring into hunting. And before I give Bill a chance to answer that question, I want to, I want to put my two cents in there first for what I think would probably give people I don't know, a better perspective, maybe not that I have the right one by any means, but I think if you think of these things, it'll help you, you know, think about this maybe in a more appropriate context or something. Uh, you know, when we, when we think about hunting now, you know, someone will be like, well, I thought hunting was supposed to be all about getting back to the basics of human existence, right? What did our ancestors do? And, and, you know, they, they, they hunted with atlatls and and uh, you know longbows and spears and and slings and and you know some cases just chucking rocks and and you know all these like really primitive ways and here you are bringing something so high tech into the game and I mean I think at face value that's a that's a good question it's a really good question but then I, I, here here's what my a couple of my responses would be, first of all, hunting is so different now than what it was then. We have hunting seasons. We have land limitations. You know, we have, we have uh, in a lot of cases, much fewer game uh, uh, numbers. We have animals that are just overall more in tune with what humans are doing. So hunting is tougher in some ways and it is done in a much narrower frame of time and space in a lot of ways than what it was for our ancestors so i think that that kind of helps address that you know getting back to the basics argument or whatever but then also where do we draw the line you know gun versus bow do we use e-scouting do we use these uh you know, electronic mapping apps, or do we, do we just use the paper old topo maps that, you know, take up the whole hood of your car when you're trying to figure out where to go? What about trail cams? You know, what about some of these, uh, stands that, and saddles that make climbing trees and, and hunting out of trees so much more efficient, you know, I guess, where do we, where do we draw the line? Right. And so, to me, if, if you're concerned about that with this, this product, you know, chances are you're probably already using some things that you could say the exact same thing about. And also looking at it in this context of shortened hunting seasons and game, game numbers and land availability. I just think that, I think that hunting is different enough now that, um, using something like this should only be viewed as, as a really helpful tool. What do you think, Bill? What would be your answer to that question? Yeah. I mean, I think you hit a lot of the points there and there's, I think, you know, 
one of the things that I try to do, especially as I'm getting older now, is I try to concern, consider every side of the situation and give every everybody the credence that I think everyone deserves as individuals and try to, you know, consider everyone's perspective and think about that hard because there are no right answers, right? But But from a hunting perspective, you're absolutely right. We have applications now like Google or Onyx or whatever that gives you a god eye view of the world. Something, you know, that was even 15 years ago unimaginable that this technology be pushed to the edge and be available for anyone to see at any time. Um, using just cell phones, for instance, um, you know, the technology available in a cell phone, you know, is from a capacity standpoint, far greater than what put the first man on the moon. Um, And then you talk about our ability to go different places and drive and the vehicles that we use. And, you know, there's, it's not just the technology that we're bringing to the woods is the technology that we're using us to get us from point A to point B is, 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 you know, far and away better. But it's, we also have a situation where there's the there's a first group of people and there's another group of people. The first group of people are, you know, myself. I grew up in a very poor household, um, and there are people out there who need to hunt to eat, and they work, you know, blue collar jobs where vacations they might get five or ten days of vacation a year. And I know because I came from those that family, um, and <clears throat> for those types of people where hunting's not only they are. Are, are, you know, it might be a little bit of a pastime, but it's also they're trying to get some meat on the table, um, especially this year during um, COVID. Uh, you know, my buddy Taylor, like I mentioned earlier, Taylor Chamberlain and I were hunting. You know, we knew I had a, a guy that we hunted with or hunted for where we were trying to get his family meat. And I was using the app at that point because I was trying to be in the woods on the day where I knew I had my greatest chance because I wanted his little ones to eat because he had lost his job and didn't have money. So that is, to me, is the ethical application of these types of technologies, the very ethical application, um, because it's, you know, it's easy to stand on a high horse and say technology is getting too far afield until you're looking at somebody who's depending on some meat on the table. Um, and and so that, that would be the first thing I would say. But then the second thing I would say, I'd say culturally, when I look through the numbers of deer hunters, we were on an uptick there, but we're back on a downtick. And myself, as a child, didn't have, you know, a father. My father died when I was very young. And, yeah, um, sorry to hear that. I didn't have, yeah, I didn't have anyone, you know, to show me how to do bow hunting until, you know, my brother-in-law had showed me. Um, and, and, and it was no more than just something I'd done every once in a while. And so when you start talking about maybe listeners to your podcasts who are young men that either don't have a father who hunts or don't have a father or a mother who hunts um, or they don't have parents. Right. Um, and they don't have the 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 access to the repository of information. And all they want to do is get out there and, you know, it might just take them seeing a couple of deer a few times. And if the app can do that and then keep someone in the deer hunting space and in our market who, A, will participate in the economy of it, which we all need for licenses and management and the and the economic factor that keeps, you know, public lands available through purchasing of licenses and stuff, but also is voting for more public lands. 
Um, so they're electing politicians who are making sure that, you know, public lands are staying um, you know, accessible for people of all economic um, uh, derivations. That is, uh, uh, is chief to me um, of importance here. So, um, again, if, if that person needs a little bit of technology to help them learn some things um, or at least help them make decisions, or like you said, kind of get them out of that paralysis by analysis <laughs> yeah, type of situation. Definitely. And it puts them on some deer. Then again, victory. Um, and then, you know, also, you know, the same. And then the third type, I guess, that I talk about is the people who are simply just, you know, poo-pooing on something because they don't like it or they feel like, you know, their secret is getting figured out or their technology is, is, is getting too far afield or whatever. And it's like, okay, we're you know, using pin sites and I can now put an arrow in the boiler room of a deer from a hundred yards. It's like, you know, I think I just told you the other day about my third bow that I'm building. Um, that is an impossibility to do with a long bow. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, unless we're going to talk about going a field in some buckskins and, and hoofing it from your, you know, log cabin and dressing this thing with a flint napped knife you know, maybe we are wise to, you know, just stay with the art of possible from a technology perspective because it's overall good for the culture and the and the, and the um, spreading of of the the hunter's ethic and the way that we go into the field and you know pursue these things. And if you don't want to use the app, by all means, don't use the app. You know, I I, I you know. I'm not saying that this is something everybody should use, but certainly for somebody who's trying to optimize their time, they're trying to minimize the amount of heartburn that loved ones experience because like me, they're a psycho and they love being hunting. They love hunting all the time. Um, And this helps them choose those better days to do that. Hmm. And it's doing it with uh, with a fair amount of scientific backing and rigor. And I see that as a good news story. Yeah, that's, that's a great point right there. And we've talked about that several times in the show, just, you know, not not going with the blanket approach of hunting every day on the calendar, but but choosing those best days and yeah, like you said, you know, even even from a standpoint of people need the food and making that more attainable and and uh, the limited vacation time, all of the above. I I I wholeheartedly agree with with what your assessment there is, and then of, of course too on you know all the other technologies that we have available to us now, even as much as uh, having a four wheeler or a truck to haul the deer out of the woods, instead of having to sling it over our shoulder or quarter it out or whatever to, to pack it out that way. It's all, it's all, it's all a valid argument. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's certainly worth looking into for, for any hunter out there who's uh, wanting to, to, do things better, more efficiently, more effectively. And uh, you know what, too? There's still 33% of the time that these deer are unpredictable. And they're Absolutely. and they're they know how to survive and they know how to adjust to us. And we just can't even the data can't quite match up with, with what exactly they're doing. And uh that's what keeps no, them, keeps them around. Right, right. I remember seeing an advertisement on one of these um I remember seeing an advertisement on one of these uh, deer prediction systems where they were they had quoted a number of like 90% um, efficacy, and I had just gotten done testing that app for about a month, 
and this was during the white tail right of 2019. And I wanted to write them. I didn't, but I wanted to write them after and be like, you guys are, you know, Hey, how did you measure that? Right. Like how many, how many deer are you talking there? (laughs) Right. How many deer are we talking? How did you measure it? What was your control? What, how, you know, from a scientific standpoint, I'm not trying to sound high minded right now. It's just people, you know, I guess as a consumer, people pay money for these things and they generally trust people to have their best interests in mind. That's what makes our economy so great is that it's an economy that's bounded in trust, right? We, the government honors contracts and, and, you know, the money is generally stable. And um, so we have an expectation that, you know, people aren't going to totally, you know, shoot their mouth off. But, um, you know, 90% is a unattainable number. Um, they're, they're animals. And, and you know, we're, I'm just getting you from that, you know, like I said, 25% against, across four dice to 60% across four dice, <laughs> you know, against across four buckets, against four possibilities. So by no means, you know, that's almost 50% wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I, I, I think you're. I think your assessment is is spot on for sure. Okay, how about some burning questions here? We can just kind of go rapid fire here as uh, we draw to a close. But I'm just th- I'm looking at this app and I'm thinking, okay, obviously the deer predictability is the biggest benefit here for a user. But um, and, and maybe you know some of these things could be things you've already looked into. Maybe there are things coming up in the future that that yeah we might look into that that application or whatever. Yeah, we got some data that might that might help with that or, or what, but so I guess this isn't necessarily looking at the app specifically, but maybe more of the body of data that you have now and uh, you know, the neural network capabilities and uh, maybe what, what could be useful for down the road. But um, the, the first question I have for you, have you been able to, to establish um by looking at the data or has the has the system really been able to establish what property is just going to be a bad deer hunting property so i can speak generally having only been to a couple of the properties where i get data from i i can speak generally and the general the two general things i can speak to are um cover and security dictate if your property will hold deer, it's not even food. Deer will move for food. And what I can see in the data too, is they'll even move really large distances at night for food, like a mile. Wow. Yeah. Like a mile to a mile and a half at night. And they will go back to their bedding and security and cover where, where they've never smelled or seen a human. Um, so pre- I guess pressure and cover are like the two things that seem to drive where we see deer versus, you know, there's a, that triumvirate, right, is cover food um, and, and pressure. Food is certainly the lowest of the three out of those things because, um, A, the sources change throughout the year, but B, bucks, especially mature ones, seem to be real homebodies. And, it, again, another one that kind of is getting cringy to me is when someone says, oh, I just spooked a big deer. I'm never going to see it again. Or, you know, I spooked this big buck, and, you know, he's gone. He's on another property 10 miles away. Right. And it's like, no, the overwhelming, the data's clear on this. That deer might even be back there a half hour later. And you're wise to climb a tree when you, you're wise to either climb a tree or try to get downwind of 
try to think about how might that buck win to you and then move to the area where that buck might try to win to you and then kill him when he comes down to win to you. Because for the majority of these big bucks, that prop, again, I can't think for deer, but it seems to be the buck's reasoning, not reasoning. These are all the wrong words. The heuristic that has evolved over time is this spot worked for me. I want to go find out what scared me. So, you know, this buck is seven years old, right? Which, you know, is like a 70, 80 year old human. And he's never been molested in this particular part of the property. But all of a sudden you decided to go scout somewhere you've never been. And lo and behold, the area you thought couldn't hold deer wasn't holding deer. It was just holding a buck and it was the biggest buck on the property. And it kind of goes to that perennial story of, you know, the kid goes and out to the woods and sits where all of the adults said that he couldn't sit or he could sit because no one else wanted to hunt there because no one thought there would be there. And then he kills the biggest deer on the property. Yeah, right. It, it kind of goes to that because so this buck has just been scared out of an area he's never been scared out of before. And he doesn't know if it was a raccoon or what just, you know, especially if it was like a soft jump, like you jumped him and he doesn't quite know what you were. They will generally be back in short order and try to win the area. If not, they're back that night for sure. And I've seen it where, you know, I've got data from a really great study that was done. Um, and even after you've scared them a couple of times, they'll move out for maybe a few days, but then they're back within, I think the max is something like 10 days, but they're back. They're always back. And, and again, it's because the properties always worked for them. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I've actually heard other you know other theories out there that basically you know through not a data analysis i mean everything's data analysis of course whenever we figure out a pattern it's just not near as thorough in this case but but uh just kind of almost a guess and check method of of gathering data you know a similar a similar thing there to what you just mentioned where where you know you get into a core area you spook a buck and then that's where they're setting up the next day because they they feel that he's going to circle back there which then kind of, kind of leads me to my uh, next burning question is there could there be any application of this data towards like tracking wounded deer that's interesting um so i i guess the problem for me at this point would be a volume of data because i don't believe i have enough i do have data where deer have been harvested and and you know been shot with one platform or the other but i have not looked into like i with a lot of this data i have logs especially on some of these hunting properties where they keep meticulous logs you'd be surprised how meticulous some of these logs are um and and these properties where academics manage them are also very as you could imagine very meticulous in their approach to data collection and aggregation. And they have notes about the days hunters went in there, if they saw a deer, how many deer they saw, how many does they saw, how many books they saw, and then if they harvested something. Um, so that, so the first thing would be, I have not looked at the data from that perspective. So that's, that's, that's a great point. I should. But the second thing I would venture to say, I'd hazard, the hazard, guess I would hazard is, I probably don't have enough post shot data, but I don't know. So that, but that's something I, as you say that I'm going to write that down and it is something I want to look through because any excuse to get, to dive into this data with coffee, I try to wake up early in the house before anybody else is up. 
whenever I have these types of things that I can think about and then pile through data while I'm drinking my morning coffee. Hey, so yeah. that's what I'll be doing tomorrow. S- some light reading. <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh man. No, yeah, that would, that, that would be super helpful. And again, it's kind of like the, the thing that, you know, some of the traditional phrases that we use all the time. Oh, he's injured. Go to water, you know, go look in yeah. the water or he'll circle back or, you know, whatever. It'd be, it would be really interesting to, to see if that if the data supports some of those things but you're right it, it, the volume of it would be that's a very specific situation that could have a lot of variables too you know absolutely how do they get hit well maybe if you you know accidentally blow, blow off a leg or something and now they can't move as effectively that's going to change where they end up or you know if does a do they bed down somewhere for a while and then coyotes start chasing them or something? You know, that could be pretty erratic as far as, as far as uh, what the data would show, but, but yeah, could be, could be something that, that would be helpful for sure. Yeah. I'd love to look I'm going to look into it. I can tell you that. So maybe next time when we follow up, I'll have that for action. Yeah. I like that. That would be awesome. Now, you know, one, and this might be a good one to kind of end up on here. Um, one other, like really, I don't know, widely circulated and i know that other prediction apps out there they they will actually you know be be go as far as to to without a doubt say that this exists and uh that would be the uh, october lull um you know where they just say okay during the october lull it's not not really worth your time to go hunting because of x y and z deer just do not move during that time have you been able to see any data that suggests a real dip during that time frame of the year in deer movement or or does that kind of kind of seem to be a myth it seems to be a time of transition where people had a pattern on deer, especially because the earliest part of the season is one of the more patterned parts of the year um, where deer are very comfortable and they know what they, you know, they bed where they like and they move it, you know, to the food that they like. But then when acorns start dropping and those first does start coming into estrus and, but also the buck bachelor groups are breaking up now. It seems to be that the bucks are just changing the way they move but they're not, I, I don't see in the data less or more movement. I just see different movement, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. whereas, you know, as the testosterone rise, the one thing that is evident is they don't spend as much time around each other. Um, they seem to be much less tolerant of each other, bucks specifically. And so what it seems to be is, is that that pecking order that dominance hierarchy is starting to play, get it, get a vote. And that also the changing dropping of the foliage has changed bedding and the acorns now falling has changed food sources. And um, so to me, it looks like just a shift in behavior and not so much of an October lull. In fact, um, one of the things that I see in the data that, seems to be evident in places where you're talking about like a traditional peak rut in early November is some of your best times to kill a very mature buck are the last 10 to 12 days of October. When people are talking about that October lull, it seems like 
you know, in these populations, you'll, they'll, there, there will be, I want to say I've read studies where there's been does that have come into estrus as early as September. But I, I know for a fact that you're going to get your first doe in like September, like, I'm sorry, in like late October and that the buck doesn't have a calendar. So, you know, he is looking for that first hot doe and the wisest bucks seem to be, or not wisest, your general biggest bucks, your four and a half year old bucks seem to be tuned into that. And so you can actually find them cruising for does the last couple of weeks of October um, before the other bucks are. And, and to me, so to me, it seems like it's a change in movement, but I don't see, um, and a lot, and again, I'll look at this to, to be sure, but I know I have looked at like week by week bell curve movement district, or I should say movement distributions. And it doesn't seem to be like less movement. What it seems to be is you have a ton of movement in the off season, get your first hunters in the woods. Then it falls into like a normalized pattern of movement until you get your first hot doe. And then you get tons of movement by all deer of all ages of all species until peak breeding. And then you get locked down, but you still get your two and a half and three and a half year old deers that haven't paired up with a hot doe that are moving furiously still. And then you see a little bit of tape taper in the movement again. And then 28 days later, um, and, and I guess I'll leave your, your listeners with this as well is I've seen data where there are trophy class animals and trophy aged animals um, that do not participate in the initial rut. Huh. They'll, there's a buck I'm thinking of, and again, it's Louisiana, um, where we had this data. And this was a very mature buck. And um, I believe we started getting his GPS data when he was seven. And we had GPS data until he died of old age at 12. And, and, this buck was in, uh, in the same part of the swamp that was just impenetrable, an impenetrable area to get to, as I'm told by the guy who we got the data from. And um, they had only seen the buck a few times on a camera, like at one or two in the morning or something like that during rut. <laughs> so the only time they were seeing this buck was during the rut at like one or two in the morning. And they wouldn't see him during the primary. They would catch these pictures like around I want to say the secondary in that area was something like January something. I want to say the primary rut was December 5th or something like that. Something crazy late. And then the second one was January something. And in January, he'd participate in the second rut and he would mate these young does that came into estrus for their first time on the second rut or does that hadn't been bred during the second first rut. Wow. Just hyper reclusive. <laughs> Hyper reclusive, and the but then he also knew that his that you know during that first peak rut there were people everywhere in the woods, and there was a ton of danger, and he just knew if he could wait it out. I don't know if he knew that again, right? But it seemed to him that the primary rut was not the time to hunt. Maybe he'd been shot a couple of times or something. I don't know. I have no idea. Or maybe it was just you know a a what do you call it a survival. What do you call it when it, it's a it's a characteristic in a species that makes it you know a, an attribution favorable for selection criteria? Yeah, yeah, yep. What would you call it? So an adaptation, yep. An adaptation, right? Exactly. But you know, it'd be a short-lived adaptation because we've only been hunting them with a bow or an arrow for what ten thousand years or something like that. At any rate, he didn't participate in the first one. 
And yeah. it was that was clear in the data. And, and what I mean by that is when you, when you measure linear distance covered by a buck starting in the second week of October, it just, you know, perennially just goes through the roof. And it stays that way in those, you know, bell curves I descri- described before. Um, but his was always, you know, just minimally, just a minimal amount of increased movement during that first drive to almost nothing, to almost no increase. And then the second one, he was just, you know, moving out like a Boy Scout, just constantly on the move until he made it his one or two does and back to the swamp. Yeah, that is, that is really, really interesting to dive into something to that level and with an animal that anybody would be after, but he's just, again, conditioned to find his best way to survive and he figured that was it that's yeah that's pretty... they called that deer the cowboy <laughs> they had seen him only a few times and um uh you know they found him dead when his gps collar stopped moving man but there's not there's not too many deer out there that die of old age i don't think but right exactly but, especially but, in like a swamp area in louisiana where you gotta yeah. think there's all kinds of things wanting to eat them yeah for sure but again they're they're not always predictable and uh that's what keeps them around forever so one and one of the most adaptive species in north america are are the white-tailed deer it's just crazy what where where they can where they can uh set up shop and and uh you know handle the change in in habitat you know even again here in my state when the corn comes down i'm sure there's data out there that that shows you know what a deer is going going to do when when that standing corn comes down and and uh you know another screen for moving on the habitat is gone what is that or moving on the landscape is gone what does that what does that do for them that kind of thing but they adapt they and they remain not totally predictable, but it sounds like with uh, Spartan Forge and and the way that they've taken this data and made it useful to hunters, it can be more predictable. Absolutely. But, but uh, how do people find you? Where, where what's the website? Where what's the handle on uh, Instagram? So it, um, the website is www.spartanforge.ai as an in artificial intelligence, um, and. Uh, on there is our link to our social medias at the bottom of the, at the webpage, but on Spart- uh, on Instagram, we're just Spartan.forge. Um, and I'd say that's where we're most active. Um, and we, you know, I, I engage with anyone. So I'm not, you know, one of those guys who doesn't answer the mail. If you chat me on there and you have a question about anything, I uh, have exhaustive chat logs with guys that seem to be as psychotic about your data as I am. And uh, you know, I have, you know, have many long dialogues with a lot of people and phone calls with total strangers. Um, so, you know, if they have questions about this stuff, they want, you know, something they want explained or anything, feel free to reach out to me on there. I'm happy to talk to anybody. And uh, we're, we're gearing up to get this app ready for next year that I'll be available in the respective app stores. And um, we hope people like it. Yeah, for sure. And I will put links to, to the social media pages and the uh, website in the show notes for this one, as always. So make sure you guys head over there to check that out. Also, be sure to uh, head over to thehuntfishlife.com. Check out Brandon and everything that he and his uh, team out in Delaware are putting up. A lot of good stuff going up here recently. Uh, just saw somebody was able to uh, help someone harvest their first ever turkey, which is pretty cool. 
now they need to come help me harvest my first ever turkey <laughs> but uh, uh other than that of course head over to firstgenhunter.com you can link up there with all my social media pages facebook instagram and of course go wild and beyond that check out spartan forge make sure you follow along as new things roll out as i've said before we're only scratching the surface definitely need to have bill back on in the future maybe a couple of his uh, team members as well to kind of share their experience with using this and 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 applying it at a high level uh, but but until that day make sure that uh whatever you're up to this time of year you take care and take someone hunting mm-hmm.